0: So today we'll return to Padmas and Baba's teachings on Vipassana. The next section is called Engaging in the Search for the Mind. And I would normally break this up into two days, but since we have two days coming up, tomorrow being a silent day, I'll cover that entire section with a very brief review of the section of the text we covered yesterday. I think it's enormously important. I mean, it's so, again, so compact, very much like Lerab Lingba's one-page complete summary of settling the mind in its natural state. And the first point being, just going back to revealing the nature of awareness, bearing in mind that there's a wide variety of different methods for achieving shamatha, and for all of those in which you achieve shamatha by focusing on a sign. You're attending to something, you know. Then, once you've achieved shamatha, then once again, because this is a rather important point, what are you left with? Once you've achieved shamatha, mind is settled in its natural state, you're attending to something, now what is it? The substrate, yeah. Because even if it was a Buddha image, good, but now release it. If it was a counterpart sign, it almost certainly vanishes. And if you want to go on and achieve the full state of jhana, the Full, full actual first jhana then you retrieve that counterpart sign and continue on but if you're content with shamatha access to the first jhana then you're content with the, with the, which is resting the bhavanga and i have not seen in the in the pali literature any clear reference of what you're referring to but i think they would simply call it the dharmadhatu the domain of mental phenomena and in the in the somewhat more nuanced Dzogchen literature then it's called the substrate That's what you're left with, which means you may not have, if you were focusing on a Buddha image all the way along, or, you know, the acquired sign, the the preliminary sign of the breath, the acquired sign and carrying on, you may, by the time you've achieved shamatha, you may not actually have inverted your awareness right in upon itself, because you're always attending to something else. So I think he's covering this base with this overlap, with the teachings In the earlier chapter, the immediate preceding chapter on shamatha without a sign, where clearly that's all you're focusing on is awareness. Just in case you achieve shamatha by some other means, pick up the awareness of awareness. If you're going to now go into a vipassana, focusing on the nature of awareness and really probing its ultimate nature. And so he gives this very concise and complete, um, you know, three paragraph uh, explanation of how to do so with this lovely metaphor... Of looking into a pool of water and looking at the reflections and pointing out that you'll gain a clear insight, clear vision, if the water is limpid and unmoving. Limpid and unmoving. So, this is with, it's just pretty obvious. Limpid, I mean, the English word means transparent and luminous, like a limpid pool of water that is perfectly clear, sunlight beaming through it, and so it's a very nice image of space of the mind. And so, when he says, limpid and unmoving, He's so obviously referring to the elimination, the absence of two qualities that are fairly characteristic of the minds we've been observing for the last seven weeks. And that is limpid. It's just exactly the opposite of the turbid quality, the murkiness of laxity and dullness. It's just the opposite. It's luminous. It's transparent. And then he said, like a pool of water that is limpid and unmoving, that's kind of obvious too. Unmoving means not moved by coarse, medium, or subtle excitation. So he's, he's establishing this as the foundation for the bona fide practice of vipassana, simply revealing the conventional or the relative nature of awareness so that you have a clear, immediate, accurate, experiential insight into the nature of consciousness. And look at it steadfastly observe consciousness and then he said but he, it is remarkable I think this is not trivial when he says do this for one day do this for one day well he's assuming that you actually followed his instructions in the last chapter and in the last chapter the last chapter ends you can go back and look at the book it ends practice shamatha until you achieve it do not be introduced to the Dzogchen view too, too soon otherwise you'll just take it as an object of conceptual mind You'll reify it. You'll become dogmatic. Think you already know Dzogchen where you haven't even touched it. All you got is a little conceptual facsimile. And so preceding chapter, when he's going step by step through the different shamatha methods, he comes to, finally, he comes to awareness of awareness. And he said, now just do this one until you're finished. Do this until your mind's settled in its natural state. He gives a very clear description of what flawless samadhi is like. It's the achievement of shamatha. And then he goes to this chapter. Okay. And so that's why if you've already achieved shamatha and you did so by by, by means of awareness of awareness, then this little paragraph is just kind of a refresher course. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. We'll do this for one day. Now, what's next, boss? You know, what next is coming up? Because I'm ready. I've done it. I've all set. Whereas if you achieve shamatha by some other means, then this would be something you could do in a day. Really, if you achieve shamatha. So what would be the problem? You're resting there, just aware of the substrate, in virtue of awareness, oh, yeah, that's what's aware of the substrate. And so it's like a one-day task, right? Now, there's something, this is obviously within the Dzogchen context, fully in the Dzogchen context, but there's, an, there's a very old precedent for this in the teachings of the Buddha as recorded in the Pali Canon. Not very widely spoken about, because it just doesn't go along with the drift, this whole enormous emphasis on Vipassana, Vipassana, Vipassana. You know, Skip Shamata, who needs that ethics? Eh? whatever, but vipassana, vipassana, um, it doesn't go along with it, with this mood of modernity, this, mo- this modern vipassana movement. And what I'm getting at is the Buddha made repre- repeated reference to the indispensability of penetrating, acquiring, gaining direct insight into what he called the citta nimitta, the citta nimitta. Citta, of course, is mind nimitta. You've heard the term before. It means sign, sign of the mind. It's indispensable. As a foundation for vipassana, penetrate to, some of the verbs he used, penetrate, acquire, gain insight into, sign of the mind, (coughs) the nimitta of the mind. This is indispensable. And this, he says, this is necessary for removing obscurations of the mind, like maybe five of them, right? So what's the sign of the mind? Well... It, it does lend itself to some interpretation, but I think there's actually a correct interpretation. And I'll tell you what I think it is. Uh, and that is, first of all, let's take the parallel. You're focusing on the preliminary sign of the breath. Or let's just let's just bump that over. It's possible to focus on an, an emblem, a kasina of the air element. I won't describe it right now. It's not necessary. But the air element and, and breath, very similar. Breath is made up of air. So this is one of the classic Theravada jhana practices, is you focus on a, an emblem, if something you see visually, an emblem of the air element. It can be, for example, having kind of a little, creating a little window, looking through it where you see the um, branches of a tree and they're moving back and forth in the wind. And you're focusing just on the air element visually. You're not listening to it. So you have, a, you have the preliminary sign. Then there arises the acquired sign of the air element. And then finally there arises the counterpart sign or you'll you'll be more familiar with the the earth pizza, the, the dirt pizza, the preliminary sign for the earth element. Then comes the acquired sign. This is actually conceptually really transparent. Then comes the acquired sign, a mental image corresponding to that preliminary sign. And then finally, when you achieve shamatha, by way of focusing on the acquired sign of the earth element, then arises the counterpart sign of the earth element. That's the real one. That's the real one. Because that is coming from the form realm. It's the conceptual quintessence, the very essence of earth element. And, of course, that's way beyond dirt. It's earth element solidity throughout the universe. And the universe is very big in Buddhism, as I've I've said so often. And so you are attending to the very, on a conventional level, the very essence of earth element wherever it manifests in the physical world. You've now captured the essence, the mo, of earth element, right? And in Buddhist cosmogony, formation of the universe, the, all the physical constituents of the, physical, of, the, of the world, that is, the material, the chunky, the hard, solid, tangible stuff that appears in the physical world, is emerging all of that from the nimitta of earth element in the form realm. The desire realm emerges from the fourth form realm, so the, the firmness of this, this vinyl cover here, the firmness of that arising from earth element, the nimitta of the earth element, Right, So if we take that as a parallel, so this is just classic Theravada, classic, really classic. I love the word classic because that's what it is. Classic Pali Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. Then if we go to the mind and recognize that when we are first looking at the mind and say, oh, there's my thought. Hey, hi, hi, Grandma. Oh, there's my desire for food. And you're just seeing all the stuff of the coarse mind. You can say, okay, well, yeah, this is, that's the stuff of my mind, just like the earth pizza. Well, that's, that's the solidity of that earth pizza right there. But now, what's the nature of mind? What's the nature of mind? I mean, this is my mind. Hi, Grandma. Hi, pizza. Hi, food. Hi, this, that. All this junk is arriving in your mind. But where is it coming from? What's the essential nature of that mind? And what would you say, Mark? Substrate consciousness. Substrate consciousness. Or if we slipped over into the Theravada terminology, Bhavanga. So I think it's kind of, I don't think this is much of a story. I don't really see any other viable interpretation of what the Buddha is getting at. And it makes total sense. This is why in the Satipatthana Sutta, he spoke of mindfulness of breathing, achieving jhana, and then going on to the whole rest of the sutta. After that, which is all Vipassana, on the body, feelings, and so forth and so on. So there's the Buddha saying, penetrate to the sign of the mind, and now you have the foundation for Vipassana. Well, if you want to popularize Vipassana, that just puts off almost everybody. And so it was skillful means. Sometimes I'm critical of the modern Vipassana movement. But I think this was skillful means. I mean, Vipassana, as people have practiced it, you know, in Vipassana centers all over the world, they get a lot of benefit from it. By doing it you know a ten-day retreat here, a weekend there, maybe a three-month here, and so forth and so on, they get benefit from that. It's all good. All good. Except, don't mistake that for vipassana as Buddha is teaching it in order to achieve liberation based upon Shamatha. And penetrating to the sign of the mind being indispensable. And for that, you may need to put in a year or two. Most people aren't ready to do that, but we shouldn't throw those people out as if, as if they're irrelevant and so popularize Vipassana that then then the whole professional level is left out. It's not even mentioned, right? And hardly anybody's doing it. Who's, who's heading off for a year or two of Shamatha to penetrate to the sign of the mind to establish now an impeccable foundation for Vipassana and really getting the realization that irreversibly transforms the mind. So there are upsides and downsides to popularization. Popularization of Vajrayana, of Vipassana, of Zen, of Dzogchen. Popularization, more people get benefit. But if the message is, this is really all there is to it, then something is lost, and it's called the Buddha Dharma. The path to liberation is what gets lost. I think that's kind of a shame. So that's what I'm trying to focus on here. So there's the preliminary. Penetrating to the sign of the mind. And as I said before, when we get to, which we're going to start very soon here, when, it was, when we move, full, move full-fledged into Vipassana, now there are multiple modes, authentic modes of Vipassana. Vipassana designed to gain direct, transformative insight into the impermanence, into the dukkha nature, into the anatta nature, the non-self nature of body, mind, and all phenomena. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. Authentic. Absolutely. It's the core themes of the four applications of mindfulness on this foundational Pali Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism level. Incredible, fantastic, authentic, all good. Here in Dzogchen, and largely we see this in the Lamrim literature as well, great masters like Tsongkhapa, Sakya Pandita, and really, I mean, Tibetan, the great masters of Tibetan Buddhism altogether <coughs> don't tend to emphasize in terms of their practice manuals like lamrim Shemo and so forth or the lamde or or words of my pre, of my perfect teacher and so forth look look for references to the four applications of mindfulness the satipatthana lots of luck with that one but it's not because i mean these are great masters so how can they skip something so fundamental because it really is foundational, foundational vipassana. I mean, it's really uncontested. Tsongkhapa, for example, gives a marvelous short synopsis of the four applications of mindfulness, but not in his rim, in his commentary to the Abhisamayalankara, which covers all the five paths, the ten bhumis, and so forth. Quintessential, spot on. I read it and said, whoa, that's incredible. But they hardly ever teach it. You know? And so, why do they skip that when they come to the practice manuals? And the answer is, quite clearly, if you realized emptiness, you got that covered. If you realize the emptiness, the emptiness of inherent nature, of your mind, your body, of all phenomena, then you've, you've covered impermanence and dukkha and anatta. It's kind of like totally, you know, it's covered. Don't worry about it. It's totally covered. Right. So realization of emptiness covers that. But if all you realize is impermanence, dukkha, and the absence of a controlling separate ego, you've not realized emptiness. So there's an asymmetry there. Realize emptiness, you've got those covered. Realize those, you don't have emptiness. And they say, life is short, let's get on with it. Go right for emptiness. And so there it is. So, now we venture into, with this foundation, he said, of course you've achieved shamatha, because you've taken this step by step. And in case you haven't inverted your awareness to shamatha without a sign, do that, do it for a day, nail it, and now let's move on. Okay? So, the next of these, there's only three three, uh, sections here. And the next is called Engaging in the Search for the Mind. And I'm going to cover all of it. It's about roughly a half page. Um, And what I'm thinking to do is cover it all now and then go back on Monday and do it again. Do it again. Because this is covering a lot of material and it would be good to be as we're sowing seeds for the future. You know? Oh, lasso. So here we go. Engaging in the Search for the Mind. Now we're moving into full-fledged, bona fide vipassana on the nature of the mind in order to realize the lack of inherent nature of the mind, of your own mind. So, he begins by saying, perform, perform the adisara and the gaze as before. Adhisara is simply a posture. It's very much like asana. But it's, um, it's, it's called tungkor in Tibetan. Tungkor. But it just means here a posture. So, what's he talking about? Well, you know what he's talking about. the Sitting with the seven points of Vairachana in a cross-legged position. Uh, so perform the adisara, adisara, And by the way, this, this, uh, these three pages should be online by now. I think Kimberly, is, she tends to be very quick, and I've asked her to put it online for this, so it'll be notes for yesterday. <laughs> perform the adisara and the gaze as before, so you recall, just exactly as, as in the practice of awareness of awareness, resting in the, in the intervening, just this space in front of you. And then he continues. Steadily place your mind in the space in front of you and let it be present there. So, place your mind. So this, I think it works across different languages. Put your mind to this, will you? I've got this problem in quantum mechanics. Put your mind to this. Apply your mind to this. Mind your head. You know, so it's putting your mind. So, so, as they can say that in in Tibetan, we say that it's in English as well. So, place your mind there in the space in front of you and let it be present there. Examine well So now that you've placed your awareness there, place your awareness, place your mind, we can use both words in English and in Tibetan. And then he says, examine well. What kind of an entity is this? Your mind that you have placed today. Now imagine you've achieved shamatha. And so you just have immediate access to the substrate consciousness, the senses imploding. And then you come out, but just barely. You come out just barely. That is, you're not coming, oh, hi, let's go, let's go for a walk and whatever. You, you just immerse yourself in shamatha. You've just done, one, done what he said in the in that last passage. And then you come out just enough to follow the instructions. But you're just abiding there with this vivid awareness of your own substrate consciousness. This vivid awareness and just resting in space, in front of you. And so, with that, you've now placed your attention in front, in the space in front. And then you ask, and you've placed this mind. Well, mind in English, Tibetan, Sanskrit, it's a noun. Place this iPhone on the cushion in front of me, Okay, Place your mind in the space in front of you. You've put something there. And then the question here is, now we begin to probe more deeply. What kind of an entity is this? This noun, this phenomenon, this entity that you have placed, this mind that you've placed, that you have placed today. You've put your mind here. And now we go into real vipassana. Authentic vipassana always entails inquiry. Bear attention is not vipassana. It's a prelude to vipassana. You need it in Shamata. If it's in Shamata, then why call it Vipassana? Shamatha is not vipassana. Bear attention, that's what you're practicing awareness of awareness. That's what you're practicing settling in the mind. Bear attention is not vipassana. Not that hard. But if you skip shamata, then you'll think anything's vipassana. So look to see if the one who is placing the mind. So now back to agency. Who's the agent? You just did something. You placed your mind in the space in front of you. Look to see if the one who is placing and the mind that is being placed are one or two. You just directed your attention, your awareness, your mind in a certain place. Good. The you that placed and the mind that was placed, are they one or the same? If there were two, there would have to be two minds. The one that placed the mind and the mind that was placed got one over here and one over there you place your mind there so good I did it I'm over here but it's good that the mind's over there and now you got two minds. there'd have to be two minds so one must be in Buddhahood while the other roams about in the cycle of existence it's not exact, immediately transparent mind he had come to that conclusion but if you have a sense that there's an unmoving mind that doesn't move hither and yon and then another mind that rose off to wandering thoughts, goes here, there, there, blah blah, 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 gets caught up in mental afflictions, and then it becomes virtuous and so forth, then clearly the mind is moving about and can be placed here and there. That's the one that's in samsara, whereas the one that stands apart, that doesn't get caught up in all of that, that's not in samsara, if it's not in samsara, it's in nirvana, that must be Buddha mind. So congratulations, you've got a Buddha mind, and you have a samsaric mind. you got two. Take your pick. Okay. If there are two. But is that the case? Do you really have two minds? So, and he's suggesting here, that's probably not the case. So that there may be a, there may be a conundrum here, a gelwa, a problem. So carefully, decisively, and now we really are getting to ascertainment. We've moved beyond technology, we're down to science, we're down to gaining certain irrevocable, indefatigable, indubitable knowledge. Carefully and decisively observe whether they exist as two. So do you when you place your mind there, can you actually see that you've placed something there? And you who have placed, can you see that there's something over here, kind of a second mind, that the, a first mind that placed the second mind? Can you actually identify there being two minds? Can you see that? Or are they one? In which case are you now over there now that you've placed your mind there? <coughs> Where are you? Where is the mind? If there is not more than one, if you have sense oh it's, it's silly, every bit every sentient being just gets one mind. gen means a semjen, the Tibetan word for sentient being. Is sem gen. Sem means mind. Jen means having. A mind haver. <coughs> a consciousness haver. A mind haver is a sentient being. It does not say sen It didn't say one who has two minds. One that's the mind that puts the other mind someplace else. It looks like, I think we probably agree, every sentient being gets one. So if there's only one, as you place your mind in, the, in front of you, in the space in front of you, in fact, if there's only one mind, which you may be inclined to believe that, then if there is not more than one, is that, is, that, is that one, the mind? Observe what is the reality of the so-called mind. And so there it is. It's something we can definitely do. We can place our mind, place our awareness. Here we can use those words interchangeably for the time being. Place your attention in the space in front of you. Okay, good. Now, are you observing that mind from over here? Is there one mind looking at the other mind? Or is this one mind... In other words, it's simply looking for something very simple, but it's penetrating more deeply. It's penetrating more deeply what is the referent of the word mind. Now, I want to relate this to the teachings of Tsongkhapa. His method is somewhat different, but I'd say it's utterly complementary. Compatible with it. it's just not the same method. But overall, here's a the theme from Madhyamaka, because the teachings, and I would say this with great confidence, the Dzogchen teachings on emptiness are completely compatible with Prasangaka Madhyamaka. I've seen a number of references in the Vajra Essence. I think when emptiness is unpacked the there, you can only interpret it, in terms of Buddhist philosophical schools, only in terms of prasanga madhyamaka. There are, there are telltale signs, and they are there. So I would say this with a lot of confidence. His Holiness is teach, teaches them as completely compatible. And Songkapa, when he, w- was, when he was taught texture and Turkel in the Dzogchen tradition by a Dzogchen master, he came away, and I can show you the source where he said this. He said, this path is unmistaken and complete. So if there are geishas nowadays who think, oh, that Dzogchen, that's, oh, like that, they might want to go study Tsongkhaba because you know, they're refuting their own master, which is kind of silly. Silly to call yourself a Golupa, By the way, I know more than Tsongkhaba. Kind of foolish, I think. So what does Tsongkhaba do? There's something really brilliant. I mean, is brilliant in so many different ways, and here's one way. When you're establishing, convention- con- con- establishing the presence of a conventional reality, establishing the presence of a conventional reality, identifying it, then you look for its defining characteristics. You look around, like for banana, pineapple, whatever. You're looking for a particular, maybe there's some food you'd like to, you'd, you'd like to have, have tonight, and you scan the food tray, as we so often do, to decide, I, I decide what what, would you, what you'd have to do, oh, do I want one bowl, two bowls, and so forth. So I'm scanning, and what, what, what? And so then we identify, okay, there are beans, there's rice, there's potatoes, there's this, that, and the other thing, and so therefore I'll take this, or tonight I'm gonna have just a salad. And so, how do we do that? By identifying the defining characteristics. What is salad? What, is, what do carrots look like? What do tomatoes look like? And so forth. We identify them, right? And so, it's just that simple. And we all know this, right? But now, Tsongkhobo's point here is that when we identify things on this conventional, this relative level, he said, once you've identified it, then, so, oh, there's Tai. Is Tai here? Oh, oh, yeah, there's Tai. Is Heidi here? Uh, no Heidi's not here. No one looking like Heidi is here. No, Heidi's not here. I've scanned. And so there are two decisive conclusions. Ty is here. Heidi's not here, right? It was simple. Done. But now once you've identified once you've identified. Okay, let's say Ty. Because he's here. So I look around. Is, is Ty do you all agree Ty is here? Anybody have any problem with that? Ty's here, yes? Yeah. Ty? Yeah. Okay. So we'd agree on that, but, I, but now I'm going to say, okay, wait a minute, I'm, okay, I'm getting a visual impression. I'm looking at Thai, but now I have to hold on here. Exactly what am I getting? And I'm getting a visual impression. I'm seeing the front side of a body. Is that front side, is, uh, front side that visual appearance, is, is that a person? Because Tai is a person. He's a human being, man, and we describe, but human being. Is that visual appearance, is, is that a human being? That visual appearance? No, it's just a visual appearance of the front side of the body. I could rock on to the backside and say, now I'm seeing Thai from the backside. What am I seeing? Backside of a human body. Is that a human being? No. Then I could say, well, that, that's just visual appearances, but Tai is not a visual appearance. But of course, there's more to Tai's body than visual appearance. His body is made up of liver and lungs and intestines and blood and all kinds of stuff. Is, is that Tai? His brain. Is a brain a human being? Now, brains don't talk. Ty talks. Have you ever seen a brain talk? Just kind of open up its frontal cortex and go... Because it doesn't have any teeth, you know. It doesn't have any tongue, so it's hard for a brain to talk. I've never seen a brain talk, you know. They don't talk. Human beings talk, but brains don't talk, right? So no, Ty's brain is not a candidate, not a human being. That was just sheer dogma-driven baloney to think that brains are human beings. Throw that out with yesterday's garbage. So brains are not human beings. That should have been duh, but here we go. We we'll just move right on, and then we say, oh, but now if I were if I were clairvoyant, I could see the thoughts, emotions, perceptions, memories, and so forth. And is that memory? Is, is tied memory? Is that tie his thoughts, his emotions, his desires, his personal history? Is that a person? Is a personal history a person? And so now I'm I'm checking out and say, okay, well, how about all of them together—the body and the personal history and so forth? But all I've done is take a lot of distinct events. Personal history, kneecaps, brain tissue, blood, and I've just slapped them all together, and now a human being is going to be that. A human being is just going to be a whole bunch of things that are not human beings, but slap them all together, and that's a human being. I don't think so. It's just a collection of a whole bunch of things that are not human beings. So the collection isn't Thai either. And moreover, Thai could lose an arm, but it's still Thai. Thai could lose a, to lose a kidney; it's still Thai. tie could lose his memory; he'd be still Thai. So he, he, And we could add on. He could get more memories. He could become a Bodhisattva. He could become, he'd still be Thai. He'd be Bodhisattva Thai. So he could add on. He's still Thai. He can subtract a lot of things. It's still Thai. In other words, what I'm engaging here is an ontological analysis. As I, I know where Thai is, he's right over there. But I say, where's Thai? And I start looking at the toenails and then scanning up, scanning down, looking at composites, looking at mind and so forth. Nowhere to be found. Thai from his own side. The real Thai. You know, will the real Thai please stand up? Nowhere to be found. Thai can't even find it. Right? And so that's ontological analysis. So Tsongkhapa's point here is that if you're looking for Thai, be content with, well, what does Thai look like? And you give a brief description. Yeah, that's Thai. I've seen it many times. That's Thai. And do you agree, Bang? That's that's Thai right over there? Yeah, we agree. So that's, we're we're done. We're finished. Right? And Tsongkhapa's point here is Mata mache, Mata mache. That is, once you've identified, is Tai here or not? Yes, he is. Tai is present in this room. Once you've identified that, we agree. This is. There's nothing more to be said. Yes, it's a true answer. Move on, please. Then, if you're dealing with this relative level, mata mache. Don't investigate. Don't analyze. Because otherwise, Tai is not here, and Anne isn't here, and Sandra isn't here, and nobody's here, and there's no speaker, and so forth. But then we've lost conventional reality entirely. Because we are penetrating too deeply where conventional reality vanishes. So if you want to remain engaged with conventional reality, mata don't investigate, don't analyze. Just recognize, yeah, that's Thai right over, right over there where my finger is pointing. That's Thai right over there. If anybody doesn't know where Thai is, that's him right over there. right? So similarly, <coughs> when you are identifying, not Thai, not a banana, you're identifying your mind, which you identify in shamatha practice. That's enough. He just gave a little a little review, remedial course in shamatha. Identify your mind, identify consciousness. It's like saying, yeah, this is Thai. Right? What, are, what are the distinguishing characteristics by which you can identify Thai versus everybody else in the room? You can give us his characteristics, it's enough. Well, we all identify him, right? And so in a similar fashion, Thai is a natural phenomenon, the mind is a natural phenomenon, and we identify it. By way of its defining characteristics. What are its defining characteristics? Consciousness. What are the defining characteristics of consciousness in Buddha Dharma? Clear, clear and knowing, exactly. Clear and knowing, luminous and knowing, luminous and cognizant. The answer is yes. That's it. Those are the defining characteristics of consciousness, and nothing else is that. Not the sun, not galaxies, not light bulbs. Nothing else is luminous and cognizant, clear and knowing. That's it. So we have its characteristics. Right? And so that's what, remember Tsongkhapa. when Tsongkhapa gives the most quintessential instructions on awareness of awareness. He said, what do you attend to? What do you attend to? When you're just practicing quintessential core, unelaborated awareness of awareness as a shamatha method, what are you attending to? Mark. Use, use, use the adjective. That's a noun. Sheer. You remember sheer. The siltsam sh- ritsam it's shamata focused on the sheer or mere or just tzam means just this nothing more the the sheer luminosity and the sheer cognizance shave off anything else just do you get the luminosity do you get the cognizance just focus on that sheer means don't add anything to do it don't elaborate don't superimpose this is it. You've got you've got consciousness by its core. By getting its defining characteristics, right, and just focus on that, and there you go, right down to the substrate consciousness, which is luminous, it's cognizance, it's non-conceptual, and it's blissful. That's that particular dimension of consciousness, right? But now we can say, yeah, but those are the those are the defining characteristics of the mind. The mind, as Thai has defining characteristics, pineapple has defining characteristics. None of us will have any problem identifying pineapple from everything else there in the trays. Pineapple has defining characteristics, stored as mind. And now we say mind has those defining characteristics, right? Mind has those, that's how you define mind. Those are two characteristics, two qualities of consciousness, of consciousness. Shepa, right? Selchingripa, clear and knowing. That's it. Those two qualities, luminosity and cognance, they're qualities of the mind, right? And now that we've identified the mind, like identifying an iPhone, like identifying pineapple or Thai, now that we've identified, if you want to remain there, then mata machet, do not investigate, do not, anal- do, do not an- analyze, just be present, place your awareness in consciousness of consciousness and be a happy camper. Just be satisfied there. But we're not satisfied because that's just shamatha. Now we're moving to Vipassana. And what are we asking for? What is it that has the qualities? What is it that has the qualities? of luminosity or clarity and knowing. mind has those qualities. Good. What's the nature of the mind? And now we're not satisfied just to remain with the conventional level. Not satisfied to remain just with the sign of the mind. Because the sign of the mind is that that essential mind that is just luminous and cognizant, stripped of all the veneers of being an Australian mind, a young mind, old mind, man mind, woman mind, and so forth and so on, stripped down to the core, down to the bare core, Luminous and cognizant. What is the nature of the mind that has those qualities? And now we're stepping beyond the conventional. We're stepping into now, probing into what is its ultimate nature? What is its real nature? Is it really there? Just like we can ask, is Thai really there? Is there really something from Thai's side there in that mesh, that matrix of body and mind interaction? Is there something amidst, in the midst of all those qualities of Tai that take away all the qualities and there's Thai. Got him! There's the one who has all the properties. There's the real Thai. Quintessential Thai. that has a head, has a body, has a mind. Oh, there's Thai. Gotcha. That's exactly what you never find. That's the emptiness of that is the emptiness of Thai. So as you can do that with Thai, you can do that with a pineapple and an iPhone. That's what he's done. With shamata, he gets the target. He gets it right there in the beam of your telescope, microscope, whatever whatever metaphor you like. You say, are you ready to go? You've got the sign of the mind. You've nailed it. You've got its essential nature on a conventional level. If you want to stay at Shamada, you can see it right there. But now if you want to liberate, liberate your mind of all mental afflictions, not just make them go dormant, now you must penetrate into what is the nature, what is the ultimate nature, the essential nature of this phenomenon, this phenomenon that has the qualities of luminosity and cognizance. And so here's how he's proceeding. What is the reality of the so called mind? Like, what exactly? What is the reality of this person, tie? What's, what's really there? It is impossible, and this is so interesting to say this in the 8th century it is impossible to find it by searching among external objects. <sighs> Need I say more? You know? So, if, if your only way of knowing, is by looking outwards to the objective, the physical and quantifiable, you have guaranteed you'll never know the nature of the mind. You'll know all about its behavioral manifestations. Thumbs up on that. Very useful. you know everything that... You eventually you might know everything that needs to be known about the, the brain correlates. Thumbs up on that. Just one thing you'll be missing is the nature of the mind. The nature of consciousness. The origins of consciousness, the nature of consciousness, how it interacts with anything else and what are its potentials. Those little things you'll never get And you can be running this program of just focusing exclusively on the objective, physical, and quantifiable. You can run that for a thousand years and you'll never get it. We've ran psychology and neuroscience now for 125 years. They're no closer now than they were 125 years ago. They don't even have a definition of consciousness. They can't measure it. They don't know what causes it. They don't know what it does. And they never will. They're so hopeful. They're always hopeful because they want more funding. That's how you get funding. You know. Just give us a bit more money. Five million here, 10 million here. You know. Be hopeful. Believe in us. You know, I don't. So it is impossible to find by searching among external objects. But now he goes further. Let the one who is pondering, okay? Let the one who is pondering, you or your mind, whichever way you like to look at it, pondering, what is the mind like? Now we're looking for the referent of the word, and we're really not we're not just satisfied, oh yeah, clarity and, and clarity and cognizance. We're going to what's the nature, what's the nature of that phenomenon? I want to now know it. What is the mind like? Observe that very consciousness. Now here's interesting phrasing. Observe that, so let the one who is pondering what the mind is like. Observe that very consciousness. The very consciousness of asking, what's the mind like? Because as you're wondering, What's the mind like? That is a conscious act. Observe that consciousness that is wondering what's the mind like. Go right into it. Observe that very consciousness. But now the phrasing here is so interesting. Observe that very consciousness and search for it. That sounds anomalous. That sounds just weird. Look, if you're already observing, why do you need to search for it? You search for something you haven't been able to observe yet, right? If I'm wondering, is Michelle here? I'm looking, 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 and then I observe. She's not here. But if you're already observing it, what do you need to search for? And this goes right back to Tsongkhapa's point earlier. And that is, first you identify, and so yeah, that's tie. I know where to look. If, if tie if exists, I know where to look. To the right of, of Sarah and in front of an, Andreas, I know exactly, I'm not, I'm not going to look over here to Yen. That's hopeless. There's no tie there's no over there. There's no reason to look there. If, I'm, if, if he's anywhere, he's got to be here. Right? And so I know where to look. And so I'm looking, I'm, I'm observing, and now I'm searching. I found the target, and I want to find will the real tie please emerge? Not his qualities. I want the tie who has a body. Does Thai have a body? Yeah, I think so. Does I have a mind? I think so. Yeah, ask him. I think, what do you... Yeah. Somebody here has a body and mind. I want to know who that is. So while observing, I'm now going to search clear? So you're moving from the conventional to the ontological, from the conventional to the ultimate. You're probing, and is there really something there from his own side, by his own nature, prior to and independent of all conceptual designations, that is really Thai, waiting to be labeled, waiting to be identified, but already there. This is therefore Vipassana, and not just Shamatha. Oh, yeah. Steadily observe the consciousness of, that, of the meditator and search for it. Probe it. Observe. In reality, is a so-called mind something that exists? That is, might we have a word for something that actually doesn't exist at all? And the answer is, yeah, we have all kinds of words that have no referent. One of the f- f- favorites in, B- in Buddhist logic is mosham the son of a barren woman—you can say that in English. Son means something. Of means something. Barren means something. Woman—all means good. It's all good English. There's no referent for that phenomenon in the whole of reality. There is no son of a barren woman. Barren women don't have children, sons or daughters. So we have a, we have a phrase, and there's nothing in the whole of reality that corresponds to it. Son, sons of barren women just don't exist at all, anywhere. So we do have words that have no reference. Right. Is mine one of those words? Years ago, when I was in Switzerland as, as a monk there, somehow I got it, it came to my hands a um, a text that was written in Tibetan by the Chinese communists as propaganda to persuade Tibetans that their whole their whole Dharma was false. And I remember it because I, I read the whole the whole thing in Tibetan. It was it was propaganda for the Tibetans, and I remember the I remember the title. It was Hla Me La mepar, ah, I do you used to know the time? La mepar. Damba. La and mepar tamba. Something like that. It was a text refuting the existence of God. That was the text. So a text in atheists, a text refuting the existence of God. Okay? Something like that. But in English it would be very clear a text refuting the existence of God, right? Well, what they did was they took God and consciousness and they said it's the same thing. They had the word namshé, namshé, which is simply vijnana, consciousness. And they said, this is what you Buddhists believe in, but consciousness doesn't exist. God doesn't exist, ghosts don't exist, Buddha doesn't exist, and consciousness doesn't exist. These are all non-physical, hocus-pocus, you know, and so gave this whole thing. It was hilarious. It was such crap. Really, it's some of the worst philosophy I've ever read in my life. But part of it was, of course, that consciousness being the same as the soul and the soul not existing, therefore consciousness doesn't exist. I, uh, I think that was really quite charming. But what they were saying then is there's a word consciousness and it has no referent in reality whatsoever. And there are philosophers like this. I mean, back at the beginning of, of behaviorism, John Watson was saying this, that consciousness is just a superstition conjured up by, by, in folklore actually saying that, you know? And, and uh, the later B.F. Skinner said something very similar. And much more recently, there's a, a tiny little school, I think it's disappearing quickly out of embarrassment, called Eliminative Materialism, that says mental phenomena don't exist at all. They're just an illusion. All that really exists is brain. That, that absolutely really exists. Brain, brain functions. But all that subjective experience doesn't really exist at all. It's just an illusion. And one of the, one of the advocates of this This is like, true, I'm to tell you. He, apparently, he believes this. And he's got a picture of his wife. Did I tell you this? He's got a picture of his, of a, of his wife in his, in his billfold. You know what his wife looks like? It's a brain scan. When he wants to show p- his friends his wife, he shows a brain scan of his wife. Isn't she cute? Oh, yeah. Male or female? <laughs> so he's actually kind of pretending to take seriously. This whole notion that all of subjective experience doesn't exist at all and all the brain exists. So this is what Padmasambhava is asking. What is the reality of the so-called mind? So he said, in reality, is this, he's actually willing to ask this question, which is pretty bold. This is 8th century Tibet, coming to life in 14th century. And this has not been an important text for the last 600 years, or maybe going on 700. In reality, is the so-called mind, that which is called mind, Something that exists. Is it really there? That's exactly it. Is it really there? Mind, the referent of the word mind. He continues, if it does, it should have a shape. Again, that's not intuitively obvious. Why? A lot of things, justice doesn't have a shape. But maybe it's not really there. Maybe that's just a manner of speaking. Beauty doesn't have a shape, but maybe that's just a manner of speaking. So is that the case that mind doesn't really exist at all? It's just a manner of speaking. But if it really is there, if it's really there, if it's really there, then it should be someplace. And if it is someplace, it should have a shape. If something occupies physical space, if it's really there, then, okay, if it's there, how big is it? And what's its shape? So this is what it's easy here to go into a a conceptual tailspin. Just go, oh, and just start thinking a whole lot. Oh, shape. But that's not the spirit of this Vipassana practice, not in Dzogchen. There is a place for that. But this is, you see, there's no clapping of hands here. This is really just empirically driven. And it's asking you, it's so empirical, it's radically empirical. And that is, when you have a sense, when you have a sense, in your own experience, of placing your awareness, placing your mind, in front, in the space in front of you. When you have, somebody just mentioned to me in a meeting not long ago, I have a sense of placing my awareness and observing my awareness in front. And then after some time, I have a sense of it's no longer being in front, but simply something I'm experiencing. So it's gone kind of more non-dual. It's just, oh, it's not there, it's right where it is. It's experiencing consciousness and it's just where it is. In your own experience of your own consciousness, and we'll we'll go both ways here, your experience of your own consciousness, your experience of your own mind, you must ask of yourself, because this is all front-loaded. When we meditate, it's going to be quiet. Do you have a sense of your mind having a location? Is it someplace? Is it up here, up in your head? In your heart? Is it in front of you? Is it some place, any place at all? Your experience of your mind, as you think of it, as you experience it. Does mind have a vantage point? A mixa? A place from which to look? Is it looking from some place? If it is, it has a location. If it has a location, then as soon as we say it has a location... It's perfectly legitimate to ask, how big is it? Is it like a little peanut? Like a pea? Is it as big as your head? As big as a football field? How big? As soon as you got location, then other questions flow. What's its shape? The shape of your head? Is it round? Square? So does your mind, if it does exist, does it have a shape? What sort of a shape does it have, he asks. Look nakedly and seek it out. So look nakedly. Again, he's avoiding getting caught up in a whole bunch of conceptualization, philosophizing, writing essays, debating, and talking and talking. Look nakedly. Just probe right into your experience. Your experience of your mind. Have a shape or not. Look nakedly and seek it out decisively. And again, this is where the dialogue comes up. I, may, I mentioned earlier, he said, report, describe for me an experience. He's going to say that again. In other words, not just coming, coming, looking and coming with your own little private conclusion. This is dialogical. If, when you're really doing this, not in three or four days, like we're doing it here, but when you're in a more extensive Vipassana retreat, and especially if you're really well prepared. I would love to be leading a retreat where everybody in the retreat has achieved shamata. And we just knock this baby off, you know, get the job done. You know that'd be really cool. That's what that's what a contemplative observatory is for. You know, this is basic training. Contemplative observatory is where you get the job done. Right? So, decisively look to see what sort of a shape it has, whether it is a sphere, a rectangle, a semicircle, or a triangle, and so on. If you say it has one at all, if you say it, it has any kind of shape at all, show me that shape. In other words. He's sending you into meditation and said, when you come out, come out with an answer. Right?
1: It's
0: like sending a, sending a soldier out on the battlefield, you know. Don't come back until you have the enemy's head on a platter. Come back only when you've succeeded. Otherwise, <laughs> <just> stay there, <laughs> you know. So we're sending you into me- into, into battle. or sending you into meditation. Don't come out until you can tell me something from your experience. Not because you're guessing the right answer, but from your own experience. What did you get when you looked? Just tell me what you got. Don't worry about whether it's the right answer or not. Tell me what you got when you look for a shape. Did you see a shape? If you didn't see a shape, did you see a location? If you see a location, did you see a size? If you see a size, do you have a shape? What did you come up with? So he says, if you do come up with a shape, show me that shape. I mean, describe it, draw it. This is the shape of my mind. If you say there is nothing to show, if you say, I looked, this is the the easiest one, and bear in mind, the really authentic Vipassana masters really don't accept any bullshit at all. If you say there is nothing to show, you know, I checked for all of five minutes. Couldn't find anything. Right answer? (laughs) If you say there's nothing to show, tell me whether it is possible for there to be a real shape that cannot be shown. In other words, you think it does have a shape that you can't see? Identify the emptiness of shape. And that if it has no shape, don't guess it, don't hunch it, no, it's emptiness. Now, this once again, Tsongkhapa is so brilliant here. He said, "I'm trying to think of if there's somebody i have not already identified in the room. Yeah, there's somebody I don't I don't remember. Just the, the, this face doesn't spring up. And so, um, Anne, I know is here, but I'm not sure Annie is Annie is here. No, I don't see her. Didn't see. I checked. Nope, didn't see her. What do you think, Mark? Is that persuasive?" But I didn't see her. I, I, lo- I didn't see her. <laughs> He's tough. You mean I have to thoroughly scan the room entirely so that if she, if she were here, I would definitely know it? And if she's not here, there's no possibility that I would scan so thoroughly that if she's, if she's not here, it'll be absolutely decisive and no possibility of error. That I will not only not see her, which is what I, I don't see her. I'm, I'm looking, I don't see her. But I will see her absence. Is that what you're saying? So let's now let's see. <gasps> I was wrong. I hadn't looked in the right direction. So there she was. Are there any mice in the room? Right. You'd have to be much more careful. And he's pretty good size. Mice much more difficult. Are there any ants in the room? And so that's what he's saying. It's not enough not to see. You have to see the absence. So I mentioned Michelle. Well, I I did check Michelle. Unless she's hiding behind the curtain, highly unlikely. Then I saw the absence of Michelle. She's not here. Neither is Heidi here. Not today. So I know, you know, because I know where they also where they sit. So, you know, without getting silly and thinking they're somehow pulling a trick on me. um, I see the the absence. I'm aware of. I know the absence of, of Michelle. And Nick, I know the absence of Heidi in the room now. I know it. If they were here, I would see them. I checked sufficiently. They're not here. I know they're not here. And that's knowledge. And not just, oh, I don't, I don't think Annie's here. I haven't seen her. See, they're t- entirely different. One you can do in a sloppy fashion in five seconds. The other one may take much more meticulous example. Looking for termites in a house. Oh, I checked. I didn't see any termites. Check again. Yeah. So that's what he's saying. Identify the emptiness of shape. Don't just say I didn't see one identify, know through your own experience, mind has no shape, if that's the case. I would have stopped there, but since we have, tomorrow is a silent day, I'm going to move right ahead. But there's the first thing to check out, that is settling in, identifying consciousness, that is, observe it, and then you start the ontological probe, to start the investigation. Likewise, let let yourself check up to see whether it has any color, size, or dimension. Okay, so again, these physical attributes. If consciousness, the mind, exists in physical space, it would be very plausible for it to have a color. Lavender is a really preferred color. Size, big, dimensions. If you say it has none of those, if you say the mind consciousness has none of those, no color, size, dimension, no shape, nothing, then observe Whether it is an empty emptiness that is nothing, and that as you're looking all over the place, where is the mind that has these attributes of cognizance and luminosity? And you see, it's nowhere to be found. It it just there's no referent for the mind that has these attributes. There's no referent. It's nothing. It's 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 not there. Just like Michelle isn't here. If that is, is that your conclusion. Observe that. Check this out, whether it is an emptiness that is nothing. If you say that it is an emptiness that is nothing, then how could an emptiness that is nothing know how to meditate? You know how to meditate. How do you know how to meditate? With your mind. So your mind knows how to meditate. But if you don't have a mind, how can you meditate? So the mind seems to do things. Right? If it does things, how can it be nothing? He's going to push hard at this one. What good is it to say you cannot find it? Again, not finding it. I couldn't find any until I looked in the right, right direction. I don't see, any, I don't see any, any, any insects here. I don't see any you know, ants on the floor. So what? Look harder. See the emptiness. So it doesn't do any good Just to say, I don't see it. That's sloppy. That's easy. Just go home. What good is it to say you cannot find it? If it is nothing at all, what is it that brings forth hatred? So recall these when you're in the meditation. When you say, oh, I look for the mind, couldn't find it, couldn't find then anger comes up, irritation, frustration comes up. You say, "Yeah, where's it coming from? Where does frustration come from? What, Roger, where does frustration come from? The to get you want. That's, that's a logical description. I'm saying, where does it come from? Well, you're such, you're comes from the mind. Substrate <laughs> something you learned. Something you learned. Substrate is something, it's something we learned here. But before you came here, so he said, where does anger arise from? From your mind. Anger, anger comes from your mind, right? That's good English. It's also good Tibetan, good Sanskrit, and so forth. Anger comes from your mind. Where is your anger? Anger is in my mind, right? So where does frustration come from? Where does sadness come from? It comes from my mind. Good. Where is that place that produces anger, sadness, fear, and so forth? What is that? What is it that bring, the mind brings forth hatred? It depends upon various causes and conditions. Good. What is this mind that brings forth hatred? Is Is there not someone who thinks the mind has not been found? So when you're looking for it, not finding, don't find it, don't find it. Isn't your mind saying, I can't find it, I can't find it, can't find it? Isn't your mind not finding? So, mustn't the mind exist since it's coming to the conclusion that it can't find itself? Look steadily right at that. When you come to the conclusion, if you do, so try, I'm front-loading a lot here. You'll be able to review on the the podcast, or again, we'll come back to this, and I'll go through it much more briefly next Monday. But when you come to that conclusion, ah, mind has no shape, no size, no dimension, no location. It's just an emptiness. Good, look what just came to that conclusion. Is it an emptiness that just came to that conclusion, or something that does exist? If it does exist, what are its attributes? And you turn it right in again. You go deeper. Is there not someone, th- someone who thinks the mind has not been found? Look steadily right at that. If you do not discover what it is like, carefully check whether the consciousness that wonders where it is is itself the mind. If it is, what is it like? So keep on coming in. Be relentless. And I can guarantee you, almost can guarantee you, when you try this, you're going to find it frustrating. And you think, oh, I like Shama so much better.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm. Infirmary. <laughs> and that's when, when you slip back to that, that's when all your mental, if I anthropomorphize your mental afflictions, they say, oh, good. He's off. We'll just wait until it's over. We'll wait until he comes out of shamatha.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm waiting. I can wait longer than you can. <laughs> Happened to yogis for centuries, for centuries. It's the one of the oldest stories in yogihood, and that is, yogis who achieve deep states of samadhi. They come out, completely lose it with sensual craving, with sexual craving, with anger, with frustration, with arrogance, one thing after another. Uh, a friend of mine here was telling me, I was—I think I'll keep this a little bit vague. I, I could say the name. It's no big deal. But th- by, by I read a text that I had a lot of admiration for. I do have a lot of it. The text is outstanding. And I assumed the author was really, really good because it's, it's really a marvelous piece of scholarship. As far as I can tell, it's really, really good. And I read it. I read about half of it by now. It's a big, big text. And so on various occasions, I've mentioned the text, mentioned the author. And then the pers- person checked out, oh, who is this author? Turns out he was a monk, but he ran off with a nun. And when he left, looked like there could probably be some financial, mm, how do you say, misbehavior. And now the police are on the lookout look for him. So, look good. Came out of samadhi or whatever he had,
1: eh, not so good.
0: So that's the thing about samadhi. Samadhi makes your, your mental afflictions go dormant. You just wait for you to come out. Zap you. They'll zap you. So this should be uncomfortable. We're rattling the cage. We're rattling the cage. I think it was Aryadeva, Wasn't it Aryadeva, That said if you even doubt, if, if there even arouses doubt about do I really exist? Does the mind really exist? Even doubt about emptiness. It sets, it sets up, what did he say? Something like a tremor in samsara like uh, the mental things start freaking out oh he might actually be getting us oh we can't let that happen (sighs)
1: so yeah
0: if it exists so if if it if it is What is it like? What's this mind like? If it exists, there must be a substance and a color. But are they forthcoming? If it really does exist, they're in physical space. But do you see any substance? Is there anything really there? Color and so forth? If it does not exist, if you come to the conclusion, okay, I get it, consciousness doesn't exist. That communist propaganda against the Tibetans, it was right, consciousness doesn't exist at all. Not at all. Then you would be like an unconscious corpse. But isn't there someone who thinks? Don't you think with your mind? Isn't that how you think, with your mind? So then it throws you right back again. Thus, within the... And now, this crucial statement. Heads up now. Within the parameters of existence and non-existence, decisively observe how it is. In that way, draw your awareness in and direct it within the parameters of existence and non-existence. So in Tsongkhapa's writings, you get this this a lot, very strong emphasis. All phenomena exist as dependent related events, but they have... They do not exist inherently, right? Do not exist inherently. You know, I have no qualms with that. It's Tsongkhapa speaking, and very powerful reasoning and experience behind it. You know, it's very easy to come to conclusion too, though. Oh, I get it. Phenomena inherently don't exist. Inherently don't exist. They really don't exist. They're inherently non-existent. See? They're lacking inherent existence. They inherently don't exist. Whoops. As soon as you say something inherently doesn't exist, this means it doesn't exist from its own side, independent of conceptual designation. It really doesn't exist. When you say it's empty of inherent existence, you're simply saying it's empty of inherent existence. It doesn't exist in that way. But if say, it inherently doesn't exist, now you're seeing absolutely from its own side, it really is absolutely non-existent. Right? There's something out there that totally, absolutely doesn't exist independent of conceptual designation. The son of a barren woman does not absolutely not exist. Because that would imply there's something out there called a son of a barren woman. And it doesn't exist. Independent of language and conceptual designation. That's nonsense. The whole phrasing defines, tells you, son of a barren woman. woman doesn't have children. That's why she's barren, no children. So it's a conventional non-existence. So what he's doing here, and this is now not so explicit, not so emphasized, and it doesn't have to be emphasized. It's not a limitation or a defect of Tsongkhaba. It's a slightly different track, and it's just good to know different methodologies, as we have three different methods for shamatha. That here, in contrast to what Tsongkhaba does, what does Tsongkhaba do? He said, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's majestic what he does. And he says, so you've identified the conventional nature of the mind. And now, identify how do you reify the mind. Or Tsongkhva is really much more keen on starting out, how do you reify yourself? Is that Thai? Yeah, that's Thai. But now, how does Thai or anybody else reify Thai? When we become attached to Thai, we become angry at Thai, Reifications there. There's somebody I'm really attached to, somebody I'm really angry at. It's Thai from his own side. That's the target. <coughs> So Tsongaba says, identify that reified object that you identify in your experience that exists from its own side, holding it, almost like suspending an atom in an electromagnetic field. This is an analogy. I've actually seen this in Anton Seininger's lab. He took a single atom, put it in a, and he suspended it in a jar in a vacuum tube. I saw this in his laboratory. A single one atom suspended in a jar about a oh, foot and a half high, something like maybe two feet high, foot and a half wide, something like that. And then he suspended that atom, that one atom in electromagnetic fields so it couldn't move around. He bombarded it with photons. So he set it up in this vacuum and then he bombarded that one single atom with photons so that he's hit it so hard, like machine gunning it with photons, you could see the single atom with your naked eye. I saw it. They darken the room. So one by one, we enter the room and you look into this, I mean, you can't see much, But there you see, and then there's that one glowing spot. It was white. That one glowing spot. And you're looking at an atom, a single atom, intensely bombarded by photons as it's held in place. Like, okay, you know. You can see a single atom. Well, that's what Sonkaba does. He gets you to suspend, hold in the space of your mind, the target, and that is the reified object. And then he takes out four hammers and six hammers and seven hammers and 60 hammers of logical reasoning from Nagarjuna, Chantikirti, and so forth to show you that that which you're holding on to grasping does not exist at all. Thai is an inherently existent, individual from his own side by his own nature. doesn't exist at all. Total emptiness of that tie. That's emptiness. Right? But you have to suspend it. So it's a very delicate maneuver. And this is why Shamat is so important. Oh, trying to do this on Shamatha, what a headache. That's Tsongkhapa's approach. Brilliant. And you come up with a sheer absence, mega. Just having identified there's the reified Thai or whatever, there's the reified I, there's the reified mind, then penetrating it with logic and seeing not there, total absence. And then you just rest in that total absence. The Dzogchen approach is somewhat different. It's identifying two extremes. Things are inherently existent, they're, they're, they're really there, or they're really not there. Inherent non existence. Because for us in the samsara, we reify everything. We reify everything. We can say in, in the Deep South, Deep South in the 1950s, when it came to race, there was no justice. Absolute emptiness of justice. Right? Absolute. And then we can become very angry about that. Absolute emptiness of justice. There's no justice here. Or sometimes when the whole court system goes awry. There's no justice here. Or you can look at some modern art. I saw the Museum of Modern Art in Glasgow many years ago. There was a total absence of beauty.
1: <laughs>
0: there was nothing beautiful. It was just like, this is what a garbage dump is looked like when you put when you frame it. It was way beyond impression. It, 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 it was impressionism, and in a sense, it made a really bad impression.
1: <laughs>
0: so sorry, Glaswegians, but man, if that wasn't junk, I don't know what was junk. It was an absence of art, just absolutely not there. And so that's a reification. That's a reification of an absence, right? Because other people pay money to go there, and they smile, not out of laughter, but actually, oh. (laughs) 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 They're seeing something there to which they impute the label art, clearly. I didn't. So I was wrong in saying there is absolutely no art in that museum. I was wrong. They're wrong in saying there absolutely is art there in the <laughs> There is art relative to conceptual designation. And that's it. And so this is what Padmasambhava is doing. He's saying set up the mind as something exists. You think it exists. Good. If it exists, what are its qualities? Location, size, shape, anything. Point it out. Tell me. If it's really there, what are its qualities? Tell me. You can't come up with anything? Oh, you're saying it doesn't exist? Oh, if it doesn't exist at all. If it's absolutely non-existent, inherently non-existent, you're in deep doo-doo. You've got big problems because your mind is still producing anger. How can you say something that is absolutely non-existent produces anything? It can't. It's absolutely non-existent. So what he's doing here is he's avoiding both the extremes of absolute existence and absolute non-existence. And that's his middle way. It's a different strategy. Completely compatible with Tsongkhaba. Just a different method. We'll have to move on quickly. So even again, if we have very little time in meditation, I want to end at six, but this is now front-loading you for a whole day. Okay, that's the idea. But this phrase, within the parameters of existence and non-existence, decisively observe how it is. Is it really existent? No. Okay. Is it really non-existent? No. Okay. You mean it's empty of inherent existence and empty of inherent non-existence then you found a middle way. If it were empty of existence, if it, were absol- if it were absolutely non-existent, then it couldn't engage in any causal interactions. If it were absolutely existent, it couldn't engage in any causal interactions. If something is absolutely existent, it absolutely has its own contours, its own borders, it's absolutely self-contained. This is Tsongkhapa again. If something is absolutely inherently existent, it cannot be a dependently related event. It cannot be influenced or influence anything else. It's totally self-contained. It is what it is, immutably, absolutely, intrinsically. It can't do anything. It's isolated absolutely from everything else. So if it's absolutely exists, it cannot engage in any causal interactions. It can't change. If it changed, it would, it would become not itself. But if it's absolutely non-existent, then it can't engage in any causal interactions because it doesn't exist at all. So change, possibility, causality is possible if and only if it's devoid of inherent existence but also devoid of inherent non-existence. Isn't that cool? I think it's pretty cool.
1: Let's
0: see. So, in that way, draw your awareness in and direct it. Now he sums up due to differences in intellect, attitude, perspective, and so forth. Some may report that they find nothing within the parameters of existence and non-existence. That is, they go here, no way. They go here, no way. They They can't place the mind either in absolute existence or absolute non-existence. Some may come to that. Let them carefully examine the mind that thinks that nothing is found. So he's not just, he's relentless. He's not letting you come to an easy answer and then just sit with your, with your conceptual answer. Okay, I got the right answer now. It's neither existent nor non-existent. Yeah. What just came to that conclusion? Wasn't it something that exists? If so, then we, he throws you right back in again. Don't come out until you're fully baked. It's very easy to be half-baked. Let them, if they report they find nothing within the parameters of existence and non existence, let them carefully examine the mind that thinks that nothing is found. Is Is there something that is steady? Something that is still? So, this is utterly experiential. When you probe inwards, is there something that is still? A still presence? Is consciousness something that's still? Is there a clarity? Is there a stillness? Is there a clarity? Clarity is, again, luminosity. Something that illuminates. Is there a steady emptiness? A kind of a vacuity, a space, an openness that is steady, still. Steady means still, unmoving. Examine. I must say, I just love this. I passionately love this. Not as a human being, but this is so, to my mind, incredibly compelling. Because it's just throwing us into experience. Just propelling us into experience. Deeper and deeper and deeper. Deeper. What it's not doing is what we moderners, and Tibetans also, they do it too. I'm sure the Chinese did and others. Just get caught up in our head trips all the time. And writing essays and getting discussions and discussing more and more. In other words, just becoming like modern philosophers. They just never stop talking until they're just tired and they start drinking. (laughs) And so if they say it is, ah, so examine, if they report that there is a stillness, they say, okay, I think I've, I think I've got it. Consciousness, when I'm really probing inwards, trying to find it, what I get is there's something there that is still. Bear in mind, optimally, you've achieved shamatha. I think I've got it. It's something, there's a stillness, a still presence. And he says, if they report that there is a stillness, that is shamatha. That's quiescence. So that is not the mind. It's a quality of awareness. Stillness is a quality of the mind, right? It's not the mind. Stillness is quiescence. Quiescence fundamentally means, primarily means stillness. Seek out awareness and come up with its nature. He throws you back in again. So he's relentless. He's indefatigable. If they say, and now we come to the final paragraph, if they say it is an emptiness, you say, I looked, I looked, I looked, I really looked. I come up with just a not finding I not placing a non-objectivity. I look for it as something that exists, can identify it as something, as an object that does exist. I look for it as something that doesn't exist. I can't, I can't identify it as something that doesn't exist. It's just I'm not finding it's just an emptiness. He said, if they say it is, it is an emptiness, that is one aspect. Emptiness is not awareness. It's one aspect. So let them seek out awareness. If all you've come up with is just emptiness, go look again. There's something more. Let them seek out awareness. If they say that there is a consciousness that is sort of stationary, or sort of still, and sort of clear, that is luminous, but inexpressible, they have identified it a little bit, so they should can, they should come to certainty and identify it. So this is Tonkopa's point. This is Padmasambhava's point, and that is this is a quest for certain knowledge, indefatigable, ascertainment. Like again, looking around, is Michelle here? With certainty, let's just assume the curtains Kirt- don't exist. Don't make it so we don't make it complicated. But just there's just no way. Michelle is just not here. There's a certainty there. Like. <coughs> tak chupa, tak chupa, Tak is a rope. When, when the Bethans say decisive, tak is a rope and chut means to cut. You cut the rope. There's no wobbliness. It's no, like, it's no longer, I think, I'm pretty sure. I think, I'm, is this right? It's not that. It's poof, the hatchet has come down. You know something. And that's the point of this, to know something decisively. So if they think it's sort of stationary, sort of clear, inexpressible, can't quite get my words around it, he just throws you back into the pool again. They have identified it a little bit so they should come to certainty and identify it. Let this phase of spiritual practice last for one day or as long as necessary. So if you're like Gautama, young Gautama, and you find the appropriate apple tree to sit under, maybe you can achieve jhana in one day. Otherwise, stay under that apple tree until you achieve it. Right? I really would like to find that apple tree myself, but I haven't found it yet. So those are his instructions on identifying, he says, searching for the mind. So as Tsongkhapa would say, as the first act in Vipassana practice, Gakchatsalwa, look for the object to be refuted. first identify, Gakchangunzemba, identify that which is to be refuted. Not consciousness, not me, not Thai Thai is not to be refuted not No, not mind. Don't refute mind. What is to be refuted? The object of reification. When we reify, when we grasp onto the inherent existence of phenomena, identify what are you grasping onto. Examine that. Identify that. And then probe to see whether it exists or not. And here he's taking a somewhat different strategy, but I think that now we'll, we'll bring this to a close. Look carefully, look carefully, and keep on working with does it really exist? If so, what are its characteristics? This phenomenon that has the qualities of luminosity and cognizance. If it really doesn't exist, how is this possible when it's producing all these thoughts? And who just came to that conclusion? Oh, Then it must exist. Oh, wh- Until you see an emptiness of extremes. Neither inherently existent, nor inherently non-existent you're moving, as you're moving into immediate recognition, identification of emptiness, you're leaving your categories behind. You're leaving behind the categories of existence and non-existence. You used it at the beginning. Is Thay here or not? Yeah, he's right there. He exists. Good. Very useful on a conventional level. But now when we're moving at Tsongkhaba himself says, when you realize emptiness, when you have a non-conceptual realization of emptiness, you've left all your concepts behind. It's non-conceptual. So you're not realizing emptiness and say, ah, now i have got the right answer. Emptiness is... You're not. Non-conceptual realization of emptiness means you've left all your conceptual categories behind you. They were there as tools to transcend the tools and to go into an unmediated, non-dual, non-conceptual realization of emptiness. But that means you've left behind when you are immersed in that experience. (inaudible) The knowledge of meditative equipoise immersed in the direct realization of emptiness. You have left all your categories behind. Existence and non-existence. You're not focusing on emptiness, and thinking, oh, this is what deeply, this is, this, is, this is what ultimately exists. You're not thinking that. It's left behind. Right? And so here as well, use these categories. You use the categories of exist, non-exist, exist, non-exist, as we normally do, which we mean it really exists and it really doesn't exist. And you use them until, it's just like taking two stones together until they're both pulverized. And you find the middle way. That's it. One half page. Okay. lasso Let's just have a little taste. I know you're tired. Short taste. Seven minutes. He says do it for one day. Let's do it for seven minutes. we venture in, just remember the name, the label he gives to this phase of meditation, engaging in the search for the mind. So start out with your initial assumption, which is almost certainly what you do embrace, and that is you do have a mind. Your mind does have characteristics. And so for these few minutes, search for the referent of the word mind as you understand it and as you experience it what does the word refer to? Check carefully to see what are the characteristics of the mind. What is its nature? Let's bring the session to a close. So, you have a whole day to investigate these issues. very important that you kind of keep it real in the sense of, as you're articulating what you're looking for, that the words you're using make sense to you, that you're not doing some kind of Buddhist investigation, but you're actually investigating your experience and your sense of what you feel you understand the mind to be. So we'll say in English, as in other languages, thoughts come to mind. It's perfectly good English, right? Thoughts come to mind. Thoughts emerge from the mind. Good, good. What's the mind that thoughts come to? Where do they come? They come to mind, right? Emotions rise up and fill the mind. Good, what, what do they fill? Thoughts occur in the mind. That's for sure. Thoughts occur in the mind. Im- images occur in the mind. That's just good English. That's correct English. Images, Im- mental images occur in the mind, right? Good, what's the mind? What is it that thoughts come to from which they emerge, in which they're present? I was holding something in mind and then I lost it. Where do they go from when they left the mind? What what did they leave? Because I was holding them in mind but then they, they left my mind. Where do they go to? And where do they leave from? <coughs> so keep it real in terms of because it's the only way that it gets traction, that it really cuts into your own experience and has any real significance if it's penetrating right into your actual experience of how you conceive of the mind, how you experience the mind, and probing into that nature. So I'll end, we'll go very little into dinner time, uh, with one of the silliest jokes that I really enjoy. But it does illustrate the point. And not all of you have heard it. I don't think all of you have heard it. But it's a, it is a joke, and within that context, I'll say it's a very tragic story, Very very sad story, about a little boy who lived out on a farm in the midwest in corn country and he was seriously mentally ill major schizophrenia and his problem was that he actually thought that he was a kernel of corn a little grain of corn very very unusual cornophobia i think it's called something like that but he this is what he thought and living out on a ranch with chickens and cornfields and so forth. I mean, it was a terrible place to live. But he was really mentally disabled, just walking around thinking he was actually a colonel of corn. And his parents tried to help him, but they were not psychotherapists. They couldn't help him. And so they sent him to a a mental institution to get some very intensive therapy, maybe even shock therapy, who knows, to really try to snap him out of it, You know that he he really was not a colonel of corn. And so he spent some months at the asylum and finally... The doctor said, I, th- I think you're, you're okay. You can go back home now. And so little Johnny, his name was Johnny, he comes home uh, back to the farm. You know. And his parents are still filled with trepidation because they were just you know, so upset that he, the little boy was psychotic. And so little Johnny comes home, and the first thing they ask Johnny, do you, do you still feel you're a kernel of corn? And little Johnny said, no, no, no. I'm over that. I'm not a kernel of corn. No problem parents are kind of relieved, but they're not really sure he's you know, telling the truth or really knows what's going on. So it seemed okay. Day, two, three, four days go by. And then one day, little Johnny comes running in from outside. He's he's panic-stricken. He's, he's trembling with fear. And he slams the door behind him. And he's he's just freaking out. And his parents look outside. There's nothing out there. They said, Johnny, what's wrong? what's wrong? You don't think you're a colonel of corn again, do you? And he said, no, Mom, but the chickens out there don't know that. (laughs) So the point is, it's not enough to know that you're not a kernel of corn. It's not enough to stop thinking. It's not enough to stop thinking that you're a kernel of corn. You have to ascertain the absence of kernel of corn. So it doesn't even occur to you that chickens might think you're a kernel of corn. Because you really recognize there is no kernel of corn here at all. And then you're really free. So all Johnny had done, done was he suppressed the thought that I'm a kernel of corn, but he hadn't suppressed the thought that the chickens might not know that, and therefore hence his terror. Okay. So it's it actually it's, it's a rather interesting psychological joke, and so it's not enough. And this is now we're back, right back from a very silly story, right back to Tsongkaba. It's not enough to stop thinking that I inherently exist, mine inherently exists, and so forth. It's not enough to stop reifying. It's not enough. Because the seeds are there. The kernel of reification is still there. And it'll come right and bite you as soon as you come, as soon as you're activated again. You're out there, outside of the mind center. Your mental fiction will come and bite you again. All they went was dormant. So this is why Vipassana is necessary to not only make the mental friction go dormant, which is really what Samatha does, but to penetrate right through their core. So you see for yourself the emptiness of your own mind. And if you see the emptiness of your own mind, that it's beyond the categories of existence and non-existence, inherent existence, inherent non-existence, when you fathom it, when you go right into its nature, it's beyond, beyond. Then, from that position of clarity, from that insight, when you attend to every object of the mind, every appearance to the mind, it's not that much work. If you see that the mind itself is empty of inherent nature, anything that appears to it, is bound to be an empty of inherent nature. Right? And from that vantage point, then you're ready for pointing out instructions to break through even the conventional. You break through the reification, the grasping onto inherent existence of mind, with the passion That's enough. But once you've broken through that, and you're now just holding to just the conventional, without investigating, without analyzing, but without reifying, seeing the empty nature of the mind, holding that, and still thinking, I have a mind, his mind is very intelligent, he has a very sweet mind, and so forth and so on, using all the words, but never reifying, but still dealing in that realm of conventional mind, coarse mind, right there, right? And the substrate from which it all arises, substrate consciousness. Once you're there, then you're ready for the pointing out instructions to break through even the conventional level of mind let alone the reification, finish that. But now you break through the conventional of I am a sentient being. Conventionally. Breaking through I am essentially being. You're breaking through that. It's conventionally true. And you're breaking through it. You're not breaking through the reification. That's Vipassana. You're breaking through I am a sentient being. Breaking through that. Breaking through substrate consciousness. Breaking through beyond the conventional to Buddha nature. So that's the three-part, three three-phase practice right there in three pages. There's a little bit more to come. Okay? So, kept you on just a little bit too long today, not too much. So enjoy our final day of silence that is full, full complete day of silence. And as I like to say on Saturday night, see you around.